Welcome to the TEFL Training Institute podcast, the bite-sized TEFL podcast for teachers, trainers, and managers. Hello, everyone. Hello, everybody. This is our one hundredth episode. episode. <laughs> wow, how time flies! Indeed,、mm. yeah, a hundred episodes. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, didn't. Expect we could continue. I'm sure no、mm. one did. <laughs> <laughs> so, who is going to be our special guest on the 100th episode? It is Professor David Crystal. So, I thought it would be cool to do something not about English teaching, but about just the subject of English. I think in our first anniversary episode, I asked my dad, like, how were you able to stay in teaching, teaching the same subject for? Thirty-six years, and he said, "Oh, I love my subject." So I thought it would be something cool today to do something about the subject of the English language. So, Ralph, would you like to introduce Professor David Crystal a little bit? Of course. So, Professor Crystal is a linguist, an author. He's written over a hundred books, most of them on subjects related to linguistics. He was one of the co-creators of basically the first ever spoken corpus. Of English, which is pretty amazing, back in the 1960s, and he's also worked with the BBC. He's done lots and lots of documentaries. He's written plays, and、uh, yeah, it was absolutely amazing talking to him and asking him about the history of the English language.、Hmm. He must love this subject so much, just to spend <laughs> so many years and doing research and writing books and yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it was amazing talking to him, and we touched on, like I say, basically some things about the the early history of English, going back about sixteen hundred years, and then the beginning of English as a global language, with English moving to North America, and then the second half of the podcast, we kind of talk about. Changes to English, maybe in the last fifteen or twenty years, with the internet, texting, all those kind of things. So it's a it's a very compressed history of English. I think it's a really good opportunity for us to look at the subjects actually we are teaching every day, because we rarely talk about language itself. We usually talk about teaching and training and what's happening in the classroom. So today, and we have a chance to really, you know, look at the subject itself. In more detail, yeah, yeah.、Mm. absolutely. Well, everyone, enjoy the interview, and we'll、uh, we'll talk to you again after you've heard from David. <laughs> Hi, David. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to the podcast. To start off with, let, let's talk about the very beginning of English. How far back do the roots of English go, and what are some of maybe the first recorded examples of English that we know about? Well, as far as written records are concerned,、uh, we can go back as far as the seventh century A- A.D., which is when the first surviving manuscripts are around. You know, basic word lists and a, f- a few simple things like that. But they have found inscriptions, of course, that go back much earlier than that. There's the, the the first recorded word in Old English, supposedly, is this word "raihan," R-A-I-H-A-N, which is the word for a roe deer, a type of deer, R-O-E, in that sense, of course,、um, which is carved into the ankle bone of a roe deer, which dates to something like 400 A.D. 
And that's the first, you know, example of it. Uh, it it's in runes, in runic letters, not in the Latin alphabet. But then there's a, a gap with a few more inscriptions, a few place names and things like that. And then it starts off in about 700 or so. And then we get Old English, which goes from 700 to about 1100. And that's where the bulk of the oldest information about English lies. But, you know, there's not that much. The, the entire Old English corpus is equivalent to about, oh, I don't know, about 50 paperback novels, you know, <laughs> that's a, of a modern size. That's all we've got. Um, but it's enough to give us a solid foundation for the origins of the language. That's amazing. So what, what was there before that? Were people just speaking other languages before then? Or is it simply that no one wrote anything down before that, that first word? Well, um, not writing things down is the primary thing, because, of course, you don't get writing until you get people coming along who can write, which means the Roman missionaries essentially uh, Christianizing the British Isles. And they are the first people to start writing the language down, um, uh, which is, you know, around about 700 or so. Uh, but before that, uh, I mean, Anglo-Saxon, according to the historian Jude, the Anglo-Saxons arrived in 449 AD in three boats from the continent and um, deposited themselves at Pegwell Bay, which is down in Kent, not far from Dover, closest point to the continent, really, where the hovercrafts used to go from when, in those days when there were hovercrafts. Um, and they were invited in to help protect the kingdom against invasions from you know, people from up north. But then, of course, once they were here, they took over, essentially. And the people who were here before that were essentially Celts. So speaking very, very early variety of Welsh, as it were, to put it in modern terms. And the, uh, eventually the Anglo-Saxons, you know, conquered the Celts and pushed them back into Wales, but not entirely. Um, you know, it, it isn't a complete uh, removal of the old Celtic tradition because there's evidence in some of the the, the names of the nobility of the Anglo-Saxon period, uh, that there was intermarriage. You know, uh, an English noble person would marry a Welsh noble person and give their child a Welsh first name. And so, you know, it isn't a cut-and-dried dismissal of the Celtic tradition, but certainly within a couple of hundred years, Anglo-Saxon had completely replaced Welsh in England, not in Wales, of course, um, and uh, further north, Gaelic or Gaelic, and there was Manx in the Isle of Man, and Cumbric in Cumbria, and Cornish in Cornwall. Uh, these Celtic languages still remained alive and well for a little while. You mentioned the Anglo-Saxons there, and the Welsh and, and Cornish. How big an influence are Welsh and Cornish on English? I've read, I think from John McQuarter, that the sort of present continuous or just the continuous tense in English, as in like I'm talking to you right now, comes from Welsh or Cornish. Is, in, I mean, in general, is there much of a trace of those Celtic languages in the English that we speak today? Well, it's difficult to say. In, in terms of vocabulary, there's very limited um, influence, you know, according to the OED. Uh, when you trace the etymologies of words uh, and you ask how many words of Celtic origin are there in the present-day English language, I mean, we're just talking about a few dozen, uh, which is really rather pathetic when you think about two languages coming together. But on the other hand, if you're the conquerors, you know, you don't borrow words from the conquered, do you? You know, 
they're rubbish as far as you're concerned. And so, in a sense, it's understandable. But in more subtle ways, uh, there could have been a longer-term influence. And you're quite right, some of the grammatical features of the Celtic languages might have had an influence on the development of some of the features of English. Um, it would be surprising if it wasn't so. But it's very difficult to prove anything like that. There's a lot of speculation about things like the progressive and so on. Now, I've also heard you write that English is a Germanic language, and yet only something like 20% of the words come from German that are, that are in English today. So there's obviously a lot of English that's come from elsewhere. Oh, yeah. Do we know what those other words or where those other words have come from? So, so like, what's that other 80% of English made up of? Well, abs- absolutely. I mean, English is extraordinary to the extent it's like a vacuum cleaner of a language. I've used that metaphor often because, you know, it goes around the world sucking in words from every other language it comes into contact with. So the vocabulary reflects the social and political uh, history of the language. And when you can, again, go to the OED and type in languages of origin into advanced search, um, it's difficult to get an exact figure because you know, often languages go into different names at different times. But it's somewhere between 400 and 600 languages have, have loaned their words into English, as it were, or English has borrowed them, or even that's the wrong metaphor, stolen them. <laughs> because you don't, give, you don't give them back, you see. <laughs> but anyway, anyway uh, yeah, when you add all those words up, uh, you end up with about 80% of vocabulary is not Germanic in origin. Of course, the commonest words in English are Germanic in origin, you know, words like the and of and from and all of those. Um, but when you look at the vocabulary as a whole, yeah, it, it's predominantly, that 80% is predominantly Latin uh, and French and Greek your scientific vocabulary, of course, largely comes from Latin and Greek. Uh, and you end up with 80%. Yeah. You mentioned Latin there. Is that from those Roman missionaries that first came over and started writing things down that you, you mentioned earlier on or, or from, from another group of Romans? Oh, the, the original. Yeah, the original Latin vocabulary is rather small in Anglo-Saxon, but it is there. Um, you know, where, where words um, like street for instance, uh, which is a lovely modern English word, but actually it's from Latin stratum. Um, and that came into English in the Anglo-Saxon time. And, and there are, you know, I don't know the exact number, but, you know, a couple of hundred words that came in from Latin in those days. But that doesn't account for the present day emphasis on Latin, which is largely a result of the Renaissance, when there were, uh, you know, rebirth of learning. Well, what does that mean? It means, you know, rediscovering the classics, which is largely Roman and Greek. And so immediately then you get a flurry of Latin words coming in. And then in the 19th, 18th, 19th century with the Industrial Revolution and the growth of technological terms, then you get this enormous influx of, of Latin-based terms. And very important to know some of the processes here, especially if you're learning English, because it helps enormously, you know. You know, if, once you know that the prefix anti, A-N-T-I, means what it means, um, then you can suddenly not just learn a huge amount of existing vocabulary, but you can start making up new words of your own, you know. You can be anti this and anti that, anti television, anti telephone, anti anything, really. Um, and suddenly you become a lot more fluent in English once you've got some of those... Uh, 
classical prefixes and suffixes under your belt. That's a really interesting idea, the use of English, or the history of English, I should say, in English language learning and teaching. I've only ever seen that, I think, once in a course book, looking at like where words in English come from and the history of them. What are some other implications or uses or recommendations for how teachers and learners might be able to use the history of English in English language learning and teaching? Well, I think there are all kinds of implications, really. The, the, the help with vocabulary is one thing. But to go into a different area, for instance, spelling, uh, you know, this is a pain, isn't it, for any learner of English, native or non-native? Um, and how do you learn the irregular features of English spelling. Well, you can learn them off by heart if you like, and that's what most people do. But it makes uh, enormous sense if you know something about the etymology of the words. Uh, there is a story behind every irregular spelling. And all you've got to do is know that story, and then it helps you remember. Uh, to take an example, um, we, we spell the word, I owe you some money, debt, D-E-B-T, but we don't pronounce the B. Why not? Well, uh, you go back to the 16th century and you find that the, uh, the, the spelling reformers there found the various spellings of the word debt very confusing. So they said to themselves, well, if we introduce an element from the history of the word debt, it'll help. And you go back to Latin where the word debt is debitum. So they took the B from debitum, shoved it into the spelling D-E-T, uh, you, say, you don't have to pronounce it. It'll be D-E-B-T, but that'll help you remember, won't it? And everybody will thank us for this forever. Well, of course, you know, we don't thank them at all. But it has done its job because now debt can relate to debit and other words where the B is pronounced. And once you know the story behind debt, then I don't think you forget how to spell debt thereafter. Uh, and I'm talking about little kids now, not, not sort of grown-ups. So I think uh, in spelling, etymology, knowing as much as you can about the history of English is actually rather helpful. So you touched on spellings there. Where do spellings usually come from? Because, I mean, you mentioned there are some spellings being sort of imposed from outside by authorities. I think before I'd always imagined that spellings just generally sort of came from the masses and just came to be somehow. So what's the sort of norm for where the spellings of English words come from? Well, that's how it started, uh, coming from the masses, yes. Um, I mean, in Anglo-Saxon times and in Middle English, individual scribes would spell the words in the way they wanted to spell them. There was no such thing as standard English in those days. Uh, and so they spell them any old how. They'd spell them basically reflecting the way that they pronounced the words. But as a result, because of regional accents, uh, by the end of the Middle English period, you get dozens of spellings for individual words, you know, a word like night, N-I-G-H-T, might have, if you go to the OED, you know, as I forget, exactly 30 or 40 different variants uh, from that period. So it had to be sorted out. So who's going to sort it out, you see? Uh, well, some countries went for an academy, but um, English never did that. So English eventually relied on individuals to do the job, and the printers, of course. Uh, the printers in Shakespeare's time were very influential in standardizing vocabulary. But by the time you get to the 18th century, with people like uh, Dr. Johnson coming along, he writes the first really big dictionary of the English language that is corpus-based, as we'd say these days. And so he says, one of my jobs is to standardize English spelling, to help sort it out. 
And indeed, he did very largely. Um, not every one of his spellings caught on, but most of them did. And then, of course, in America, um, Noah Webster did exactly the same thing. New country, new deal. Uh, we need a new language uh, to express our identity, says Noah Webster. And the best way of doing this is to have our own spelling rather than the British spelling. So that's why we get C-O-L-O-R for color and lots of others, you know, but another individual doing the job. So people like Johnson and uh, Webster are extremely influential as far as modern English is concerned. These days, it's the same thing, except we don't know the names of the people. You know, if, you, if you're not sure of a, a spelling, Ross, what do you do? You look it up in what? A dictionary. And who writes a dictionary? A lexicographer uh, at Oxford or somewhere. Now, you don't know his name, but he's just as influential in deciding which spelling shall come in the dictionary. The only difference is that he's based his decision on many cases, she actually, there are lots of female lexicographers now, um, based their decision on studying a wide range of examples of usage. So in a sense, the answer to your question is both. An individual makes a decision about what goes in the dictionary, but it's based upon usage from the masses that they've collected over a period of time. Moving on a bit then, in terms of the history of English, in your book, English as a Global Language, you mentioned that the first settlers in America came from different parts of England and, quote, many of them came from England's West Country, such as Somerset and Gloucestershire, and brought with them its characteristic accent, voicing of strongly pronounced R sounds after vowels. Is that what the thing that's led to the rotic R in the, the American accent and pronouncing R much more than maybe people in, in England or most parts of England do. If that's true, it's pretty amazing that the most common accent in English now basically developed out of the, the West Country accent. Well, yes, ab absolutely. Um, the, uh, you know, pronunciation doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from people and the people who came across in the first place are the ones that are going to influence the development of the accent, or accents, one should say, because uh, present-day American English has accent variation, not as much as in the UK, but still a, quite a lot. And so you go to New England, where they don't pronounce the R. It's not a rotic accent there. You know, it's Harvard Yard, not Harvard Yard. And if you trace that back, you'll trace it back to individuals who settled in different places from different parts of this country, um, where... Uh, either they did or didn't pronounce the R. So later on in the same chapter of that book, you also talk about the slave trade and how that has affected accent. So here's another quote from English as a Global Language. The policy of slave traders was to bring people of different language backgrounds together in the slave ships to make it more difficult for groups to plot a rebellion. The result was the growth of several pidgin forms of communication, and in particular, a pidgin between the slaves and the sailors, many of whom spoke English. Once in the Caribbean, this pidgin English continued to act as a means of communication between the black population and the new landowners, and among the blacks themselves. Then when children were born, the pidgin gradually began to become used as a mother tongue, producing the first black Creole speech in the region. 
It is this Creole English which rapidly came to be used throughout the southern plantations and in many of the coastal towns and islands. So again, I also thought that was quite incredible. Yeah. Can you tell us, like, do those Creoles, does that have an influence on the way that, you know, certain communities in the U.S. speak English now? Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, the, the, the development of the of what's often called a Creole, though, again, there are many different kinds of Creoles. You know, it's a continuum of, of all sorts of variations. Um, uh, it's an inevitable development that comes from a situation like the one that we saw in, in the early political history of the United States. Um, it's uh, the Creoles that are in the Caribbean now are rather different from the Creoles that you get across the southern United States. Uh, but they are all... We all share certain features, um, as the Creolists have demonstrated to us very helpfully over the last few years. Um, you know, using uh, the, the verb to be without any variation, that sort of thing. And whereas once upon a time, you know, Creoles and pigeons were viewed as poor quality versions of English, now it's very much the other way around. I mean, Creoles and pigeons are seen to be evolutions of language that have just as much respectability and they may not be a standard, they may not be as literacy-orientated, but just as much respectability as any of the traditional varieties of English. And of course, over the years, uh, the standardization uh, has developed. I mean, there is now a huge Creole literature. I mean, Caribbean, Jamaican, for example, poetry, stunning stuff with its spelling conventions and its punctuation conventions and its local vocabulary and local grammar, makes it a variety of English that's equivalent in its status to any new English anywhere else in the world. So... I thought we could fast forward another few hundred years to the, for the second half of the podcast. I thought we could talk a bit about the more recent history of English. Can you tell us, like with the rise of texting in the 21st century and the internet, and also the spread of English as a global language, what would you say is sort of the biggest change that's affected the English language that's happened in sort of recent history? In relation to the internet, you mean, Ross? Well, yeah, I mean, it could be. I mean, you know, would you say that, that the internet's the thing that's caused the biggest change in the way that English has been used in, in recent times? Well, one mustn't overstate this. Uh, when you actually look at the... If you took a snapshot of modern English in all its variation now and compared it with modern English in its variation in 1990, before all these things started to take off, you don't find that much difference, actually. You know, you and I could be having this conversation... 20 or 30 years ago, and I doubt whether there'd be very much difference between the way you and I would speak then and the way we're speaking now. What's happened is that the internet has provided us with a fair bit of new vocabulary. I mean, how much? Nobody's counted it all, but it'll be a few thousand words and expressions, maybe 5,000 now, something like that. But that's a drop in the ocean as far as language is concerned. I mean, how many words are there in English? Nobody knows, but, you know, we're talking millions rather than a few thousand. Grammar, hardly any variation. Um, pronunciation, well, it's too soon to say. Uh, the, the main area where we notice differences in orthography, and this is where some of the more permanent effects are going to be felt. By orthography, I mean spelling, capitalization, and punctuation. And so we all know anybody who uses the internet now, which is 
most young people and you know, increasingly an awful lot of older, there's three generations of internet users out there now. Um, everybody knows that there's a minimalism with punctuation, for instance. You can have emails and chat and so on with no punctuation marks at all or hardly any. There's a maximalism in which you can say, uh, fantastic, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, as many exclamation marks as you like, you know, by just keeping your finger on the exclamation mark key. And then new conventions, especially amongst younger users, coming out of the technology. So a, a recent example is from Twitter. Now, when Twitter comes along, Twitter devised in 2006, basically short messaging service for the internet. Put your text messages up on the internet. That was the idea. And to begin with, it was very much a person-orientated service. The, the prompt was, what are you doing? And so you would say, I am eating cornflakes. I am on the train or whatever. Very first person, very present tense. And then in 2009, Twitter changes its prompt. And the new prompt is, what's happening? So immediately now you get third persons coming in and different tense forms coming in. What has happened? What is going to happen? Etc. And as Twitter becomes more of a news reporting, advertising, general chat service, and as the number of messages increased, because it was one of the fastest growing internet activities of the time, so it became necessary to follow threads, to find your way through the millions of messages that are out there. So you get the development of the hashtag. Now, the hashtag is very interesting because it started off as a categorization feature. Um, hashtag... Language teaching would mean that all the threads to do with language teaching would come together. Hashtag television, hashtag Game of Thrones, hashtag, you know, wh whoever, and suddenly it would group things together. Very nice idea. But the interesting thing is what's happened in the last couple of years. Uh, well, actually, last five years or so, but it's really becoming noticeable now, um, is the way the hashtag has developed a more general sense it's no longer just for categorization. I might send you a message and say, hashtag amazing. It's not because amazing is going to be grouping lots of messages together. The hashtag amazing says the meaning is this. It's not just me saying it's amazing. I am suggesting that this will be amazing to an awful lot of people. In other words, I'm distancing myself a little bit from the concept of amazing, suggesting it is a more general notion than my personal emotion. And so now uh, on Twitter, you'll get hashtag. I, I've seen tweets with, you know, six or seven hashtags in where the person is just hashtagging virtually anything they want to say. And then offline, uh, there are these lovely skits um, that you can see on YouTube where hashtag sketches, where everything we say to each other is hashtag this, hashtag that, hashtag the other. And it's very funny, but it reflects a reality because I have heard young people, I don't do it myself. Uh, but I have heard young people sort of say to each other, hey, hashtag holidays and things like that. Do you mean that the hashtag has actually crossed over into speaking, that people would actually say that to each other and not, not as a joke or, or as a parody? Yeah, absolutely. As part of, a, <laughs> you know, modern cool slang. Yeah, that, that's amazing, isn't it? That what would be written online, it would actually be changing the way that people are speaking yeah. offline. Yeah, exactly. And some of those internet activities do seem to have spilled over. They're beginning slowly to spill over. Uh, I mean, there have always been some words that have gone into everyday speech. I, I, I can say uh, 
hey, you know, what you're saying isn't on my menu here. Uh, and, you know, that means, well, you know what it means. It's a menu from the internet, which I'm now talking about. Or um, I, I can say, hey, download that for me, will you? I Meaning, will you tell me a bit more about that? You know, that kind of usage has been around for a while. I don't know how frequent it is, but, you know, it's out there. But this is the first time that I've seen something like um, uh, an orthographic convention uh, transferring into everyday speech. And I think the thing that goes with this is is this sort of moral panic that surrounds the internet and the way people speak in the internet, this whole idea, you know, English is going to the dogs, that kind of thing that, you, you know, you hear from time to time. I wanted to ask you, has there ever been any evidence of changing writing conventions on the internet that actually affected or influenced negatively how maybe, for example, students would write their homework at school or, again, university students might write essays or, or anything like that? No, no evidence at all. I think we're over that stage now. Um, that was, yeah, that was a stage that was really quite powerful in the early 2000s, first 10 years of the millennium. And, you know, people like John Humphreys, the uh, BBC man, saying... Uh, oh, it's a disaster, these text messaging abbreviations, uh, uh, these young people are raping and pillaging the English language, You're using language like that, you know. Um, well, this was a knee-jerk reaction to the apparent novelty of some of these new forms of expression. It was a, an overreaction because things like text messaging abbreviations were only ever a small percentage, something like 10% of text messages had abbreviated, were a, the words were abbreviated, you know, most of the time was standard English, colloquial standard English, but standard English nonetheless. Um, and uh, I used to go around a lot in those days uh, and into school, still do, but not, not doing this anymore, and, I, and ask um, the teachers themselves whether they ever saw the influence of these abbreviations in essays and homework and things like that, and they would say no. And I'd ask the kids and say, would you put C for C and U for U and so on into your essays? And they looked at me as if I was mad and said, we're not stupid. You know, of course not. I mean, all right, there might be the odd individual, either because he's perhaps not so intelligent or perhaps because he's just trying it on, you, you, you know, who might do that. But the majority, you know, it didn't happen as a routine. And any online evidence to the contrary was usually, you know, fake news, as we'd say these days. You know, there were there were stories of kids sending in their essays entirely filled with abbreviations. These were all hoaxes. Um, doesn't happen anymore. And in any case, uh, the world has moved on. So text messaging abbreviations, I don't know what's happening in China or in other parts of the world, but in this country, they're no longer cool. I, I went to a school not so long ago uh, with 16, 17-year-olds, and we were talking about this, and they simply said, uh, we, you know, we don't use them anymore for a couple of reasons. Predictive texting makes it unnecessary, uh, and it's actually rather more difficult now to put in an abbreviation than it used to be because of predictive text. And secondly, as one lad said to me, I'll tell you when I stopped abbreviating. I stopped, he said, when my dad started. Uh, and so text messaging abbreviations seem to be on their way out. Again, that's a really interesting story, the, the idea that maybe technology initially caused or encouraged people to use those abbreviations probably because it would I guess be faster to use them or because maybe the number of characters you used to be able to use in a text message was so limited but then now as the technology's changed 
and predictive text has become more or less universal, it's actually encouraged people to use the full correct spellings or, or, or more standard forms. Well, that's that's exactly right. Um, it, it, it's very noticeable to see how, how the texts of the new generation of text users are much more standardized than they were 10 years ago. So that was the effect of internet on language. What about the effect of the internet on the study of language? Has the internet done much to change the, the field of linguistics? Has that been a sort of a, a revolutionary moment for the, the study of language? I can imagine corpuses especially must have, have been a big change for the, the field of linguistics. Oh, it certainly uh, re- revolutionized the study of English, in, indeed. Um, I mean, we, we can now find answers to questions that were unanswerable a, a decade or so ago you know, about usage, about collocation, about all these things. You know, it's absolutely wonderful to see the big data uh, out there these days. But, uh, I mean, that's a different issue. That, that's how you analyse the language. The actual language you get on the internet, for instance, isn't so much influencing everyday English as the other way around. I mean, everyday English has influenced the language of the internet because you and I know that we can speak in short sentences you and I can have a WhatsApp exchange uh, very, very easily uh, because we just put in elliptical sentences all the time. If you and I spelt out all our sentences in full, WhatsApp would collapse. We just, we just would not have a satisfactory conversation there. And the same point applies to any instant messaging exchange. You know, the uh, elliptical sentences, as it were, have come into their own, uh, along with all the new developments like emojis and so on to, to keep the oil of the conversation going. So we're two separate issues, I think, uh, the extent to which the internet style has evolved as a result of colloquial English, colloquial English now being seen in a written, printed form in a way that it never used to do. And, and it might be that in due course, there's going to be some feedback back into everyday colloquial English, like we were talking about with hashtag a little while ago. But the corpus uh, revolution has been just unbelievable. Yeah, I think corpuses are just an amazing tool for teachers and materials writers. I mean, I've worked in materials development for a while now, and so often I find that when I see something that's been written that sounds strange and I ask the person that wrote it, you know, oh, did you check this in a corpus? And the answer yeah. I usually get is no, I checked it in the dictionary. It just seems it's just so useful to be able to check oh, words yeah. and their usage in, in real life. I mean, is that, is that also something that you would encourage teachers and materials writers to do, to look up language in a corpus as well as in a dictionary? Absolutely. Um, dead right. That's what they, they, they must do. And it's now, once upon a time, it was not so easy. Uh, until very, very recently, this was not an easy thing to do. Um, often you had to pay or you had to download the corpus and so on, and nobody had a computer of the right size, and there were all sorts of technical complications. You had to sign all kinds of forms and things like this. These days, an awful lot of the corporate that are out there, you just have to sign up, register, and away you go. And, oh, it's so illuminating, but not for everything. I mean, there comes a point where too much data is as bad as too little data. And it depends on the question you're asking. For instance, for collocations, it's brilliant. I mean, if you say, so how is the word aftermath being used these days? You look up aftermath 
And you go down and you get, you know, several hundred examples of it. But it only takes you a couple of minutes to scan down those and see that still the majority of usage is the negative sense, but there is increasingly a positive sense. And then you can these days look up and say, well, in what context is the positive sense being used? And the, a good corpus will tell you and say it's used in certain types of newspapers or certain types of broadcasts or whatever it might be. So, uh, you know, I, I would strongly recommend as much use of this as possible, but it is very time consuming. And, you know, teachers of all the time in the world, don't you? you know? <laughs> uh, it is time consuming, not only because it takes time to look the thing up, but once you're in there, it sucks you in and you don't want to leave it. And you think, I'll just spend five minutes and an hour goes by, but all the marking still has to be done, you know? <laughs> They're really amazing, aren't they, for being able to get objective data on how language is used. I mean, you used to be before, I think, that you'd go, well, that sounds a bit strange to me. You know, I'm not sure that's how I would say it. Whereas now you can just say, well, actually, this thing is 10 times less common than this other usage. So, you know, why don't you teach that or why don't you say that in this situation instead? And, you know, it's going to make make more sense. I, I think it's really amazing to, that we can now get that sort of data on language so easily. Yes. Yes, you can indeed. And, and increasingly these days, you can get these numbers about, you know, any variety of English around the world. So some of the big corpora now will have, um, you, you can search for, you know, what's going on in Nigerian English or Ghanaian English and see if a particular word is going to be used there. So not just for people in Ghana, I mean, if I, if I was writing a novel about somebody traveling through Africa, I'd want to know what vocabulary to make the Ghanaian part of the visit realistic, you know, so you can start using it in that kind of way as well. So how about we talk about some, some of the ideas that came up there in uh, that interview with David, I thought the idea of uh, teaching prefixes and suffixes is obviously something that probably happens in the classroom anyway, but I'd never really thought about it as being related to the history of English before. Yeah, we, we all know that teaching the prefix and suffix and it would enlarge a student's um, vocabulary and then they can form new vocabulary. But at least for myself, I never bring in, you know, really the history of English and I gave a little bit more background about these aspects. And also, um, he mentioned about spelling, uh, which is kind of related to history. And that's straight away reminds me of the Chinese uh, idioms, 成语. You know, they're all four words together. Because some of them actually from the uh, word itself, and it seems a positive meaning. But actually, if you know the story, it is actually means something negative or the way around. Yeah. Remember Simon Galloway, who is one of our regular guests, he's Chinese writing is actually really good. And, and he said the reason is he uses some method or technique which involves memorizing a story related to the character. And that's how you remember to draw it. And I think he was saying there that's got to be so much more of an effective way to learn how to spell something than learning it by rote and so much more interesting. And this also reminds me of if you look at the Bloom taxonomy and if we spelled it, and is it just a purely like uh, the first level, which is remembering? But if you know the story behind it, it seems going to the second level, which is understand. 
It definitely made me also think of something that Brian Tomlinson's written about a lot, which is this idea of deep processing, really concentrating and being interested in whatever the content is. And I remember as a child, nothing bored me more than learning spellings. And I was so bad at learning spellings, but pretty much everyone loves stories, <laughs> right? And what a great way to try and remember the spellings of words by mm. learning and, and about the, the stories behind them. It makes you think that maybe that's something that could happen in course book writing that, you know, we often have a little box on, you know, vocabulary or something like that. But wouldn't it be cool to have a little box on, oh, here's the story of this word or the history of this word? Mm. In the second part, Professor Crystal mentioned about there's not much difference in terms of how we speak or the words that we are using now compared to 20, 30 years ago. And not many new vocabularies um, coming out. I think he said would be about 5,000. 5, but he was saying that's not a significant change in English. Yeah, I, I also thought that was really quite interesting. And also interesting that the thing that it has changed is a lot of it is about punctuation. I'd heard a few things like this about maybe how now with instant messaging, etc., that people don't really use punctuation very much. For example, if you're sending someone a message, you don't bother using a full stop or a period if you're American because you don't really need to show it's the end of the sentence because you hit send. So it's kind of really hmm. obvious that it, it is the end of the sentence. And also think it might be related to using emojis as well, because um, usually the emoji probably has better, of course, emoji, the emotion expressions, <laughs> right? And then people would rather just use it instead of uh, having many, many escalation mark and they probably just use, use an emoji. emoji and to mm. show that. I definitely noticed before some of my colleagues who are Chinese who obviously send fewer messages in English to each other than I do, putting commas in everywhere when writing materials. <laughs> and I think probably maybe some of that is that the way that they learn to punctuate English is probably based on a kind of a model that is maybe a little bit out of date now. And it's interesting, you know, also he talked about how internet affect people using the language. Rousey, I remember like you told me the story that something you find out about, uh, like in Chinese, you realize um, usually people use that expression when they are typing messages, but you rarely heard people using it when they're talking. But uh, one day you heard someone talk to you and using that verse. Did you want to share that story? Yeah, well, it, it's a word, zan is a word in Chinese, which sort of means like good or great or something. Mm. But it's definitely internet speak that you never, I'd never seen anyone say it before. I'd seen people typing it for years. Like to dianzan is sort of like to give someone a thumbs up online, something like that, or to like a post. But I noticed people very recently just all of a sudden starting to use it in spoken Chinese. So it's interesting. I wonder if that's the same for different languages or if some that that uh, <laughs> crossover hazao <laughs> happens in some more than others. Yeah. About the hashtag, have you ever heard that? Have you ever seen that hashtag sketch from Jimmy Fallon and no. Justin Timberlake? No, 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 I don't think so. Do you so. want to see it? All right. Hey, Justin, what's up? Not much, Jimmy. Hashtag chillin'. What's up with you? Just been busy working. Hashtag rise and grind. Hashtag is it Friday yet? <laughs> <laughs> hey, check it out. I brought you some cookies. Hashtag homemade. Hashtag oatmeal raisin. Hashtag show me the cookie. <laughs> Sweet. Hashtag don't mind if I don't. 
pretty good. Hashtag get my cookie on. Hashtag I'm the real cookie monster. Hashtag no, 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 no. Delicious, right? Yeah. Hashtag I did it all for the cookie. Hashtag LOL, Hashtag classic. Hey, guys. Yeah, Quest? What's up? Hashtag shut the f up. So after that, he talked to, we talked a bit about text messaging and the, the way that English used to be written in text and is no longer. And he, he said, oh, I don't know what's happening in China. In China, w- were there ever any conventions of people writing text messages really differently to how people would speak? Yes. There were. I think I'm kind of old-fashioned for that because uh, I definitely feel when I'm having a conversation with my colleague or younger colleague, they're using some expressions. Some of them are actually maybe having the same pronunciation what it was supposed to be. You can still understand it, right? But some of them just know. Like SKR is one of the most popular ones lately, even though it's not Chinese. But I remember asking them, what does that mean? How can I use it? They showed me, but I still, <laughs> you know, I haven't used it for myself. Well, what does SKR mean? Just something really good or something positive. It's also interesting. Some expressions are, think, from the pronunciation. Like, uh, like, or like this. Yeah. And they say, 这样子, oh, 这样子, like, 这样子, just like oh. a two words, right? 这样子啊, four words. Yeah. Interesting. That's also some kind of shortening and also related to the pronunciation, much like the C-U-L-8-R kind of things. But also that it was interesting what he said about how text language has just, it's come and gone. Maybe in the space of, what, 10 or 15 years or something, it's just disappeared. I think that's uh, really amazing that you can have almost like a, a whole different way of writing English. And then, yeah, all of a sudden, because technology has changed, it's just gone. One more interesting thing he was talking about there with text messages is how they tend to be written with a lot of ellipsis. So what are you up to? driving you don't have to say i am driving now uh, and how that you know we don't write in f- full sentences in those cases and it got me thinking about how that's very similar to what people used to write in telegrams i don't know if you, do you know what a telegram mm-hmm. yeah so when you get charged by the word or by the letter and um yeah people would obviously just minimize <laughs> how much they were writing and i thought that's kind of like text messages i wish someone who likes to <laughs> type long messages or long email you know would go back to those <laughs> telegraph time <laughs> maybe we should do that for our colleagues that write long emails as you get, <laughs> get charged by the word <laughs> anyway so i think the last thing we talked about there was uh corpuses mm-hmm. or corpora i was talking to a lot of teachers before i think the concern was that's only for like a spoken English, and that's for daily life, and that's what you say when you are in a normal conversation, but not for such and such situations. But I was thinking, because there are different type of corpus, right? So you can definitely find the purpose of using this language, and then you can see how often it could be used for that situation you are looking for. So I think that I just want to highlight that a little bit. It's not just corpus only for, I don't know, like a daily conversation, that type of uh, I think it's the English. opposite. I think most of it will come from, for example, news sites. So most of the corpus English, I think, tends to be more formal. And if you actually want to find some for 
spoken English, mm-hmm. it's actually a little bit more difficult. difficult. Yeah, and those mm. are, but they do exist. For example, there's one good one from subtitles of American soap operas. So you you get some great spoken English from that. Well, we'll put some links at the bottom of this episode to to our favorite corpuses. <laughs> Personally, I find them really useful in materials writing for when you go. Like I had a situation recently; someone was making a lesson about Halloween. And going, uh, oh, like, what, what's the name for the, you know, the lantern that you make? What's it called? I was going, well, I think we call it, do we call it a pumpkin lantern? And then I was thinking, hang on, in Scotland, I think we call it a turnip lantern. What do the Americans call it? Is it a jack-o'-lantern? And then how do you spell jack-o'-lantern? So we just put all of them in a corpus and all of a sudden you can get a very objective view of which one is more common. Which one? Jack O'Lantern. Yeah, but like <laughs> ten, 10 times more common. There's another one like I remember a while ago where someone had at the beginning of every every lesson, eyes on me. And I was like, that doesn't sound as good as look at me or as natural as look at me. And again, I thought, well, how can I persuade my boss that we should change all these and again, look it up in a corpus? And you go, well, actually... Look at me is a hundred times more common <laughs> than eyes on me. So which one do you want to use? Do you use eyes on me? <laughs> no, I think he actually agreed to change it. <laughs> Maybe they changed it back after I left. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to find out more about David Crystal, check out www.davidcrystal.com. And the book that I quoted from was English as a Global Language. If you're interested in that, there's a a lot about, at the beginning at least, the spread of English to the Americas. Thank you for listening our 100th episode. And we'll see you soon in our 101st episode. (laughs) Good. All right. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. For more podcasts, videos, and blogs, visit our website www.tefltraininginstitute.com. If you've got a question or a topic you'd like us to discuss, leave us a comment. And if you want to keep up to date with our latest content, add us on WeChat at Tefl Training Institute. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Mm-hmm.